0: This is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I am joined by Dan Ponder to discuss his recently published book, Presidential Leverage, President's Approval and the American State. This book, published as part of Stanford University Press's series on studies in the modern presidency, explores the concept of presidential leverage, how much capacity the president has to accomplish goals, especially in terms of asserting power on Congress or in Congress as a president. But Ponder examines leverage in context, which makes his work particularly important and useful in our thinking about not only the executive, but also the legislature and the ways in which the branches and bodies operate in our political system. But I will let Dan dive more into the details as we discuss presidential leverage. First, of course, I want to welcome Dan Ponder onto the New Books in Political Science podcast and to ask him to tell us a bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hi, Dan.
1: Hi, Lily. Well, thank you for having me. I think this, uh, when I think back about this project, it has consumed me far more than I ever thought it would. Um I am a professor at Drury University, which is a small liberal arts school in my hometown. Um, I was teaching in Colorado for 13 years and had the opportunity to come back. And so this project has, the entire project has spread over uh, a couple of decades now, I'm sad to say, um, and two universities. And uh, But I've been lucky to have support at both universities uh, as I was able to to move through this. But basically, um, it came about under pressure, I think, in the acknowledgments. I say, you know, the roots of this are born in procrastination. It was 1995, back when we used to have to do the APSA um you know, actually write it up, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it and send it away. And I think it literally was the night or two before it had to be postmarked. And I wasn't sure. And I had recently read Steven Skoranik's uh, book, uh, The Politics Presidents Make, and I was fascinated by it. And I particularly remember a a line out of that book Um where he says something, and I'm paraphrasing now, but he basically says something like, um, presidents stand paramount when other institutions of, uh, American government have essentially been laid to waste, you know, uh, Congress or, or maybe less so the courts, maybe, uh, states in the federal system. And that's when presidents are likely to be able to assert their power. So I, have, I had also been interested in, uh, public expectations of the presidency, particularly the expectations gap. And one of the ways to look at that, of course, is looking at presidential approval. Now, that was another thing that had gone back into my days at graduate school, which was, um, you know, it always was interesting to me that we... Uh, looked at a, a pretty ubiquitous number, which is presidential approval. And I always thought, well, it'd be interesting to also see what Congress or or the court. And little had been done, or at least that I had been introduced to. And then I think in around, around that same year, uh, there was a book put out by um, John Hibbing and Elizabeth Thies Morse, um, Called Congress's public enemy, and and they started to take things like congressional approval into account. And I thought, you know, it is interesting because you know we live in a separated system; we have separation of powers, checks and balances, uh, and so. But we only really looked at presidential approval, and I started playing around with ways uh, to maybe get at Skoronic's idea, and anyway, to make a very long story short. Um, I kind of, after a couple of iterations, had come up with, well, what if we looked at uh, the presidency in context and looked at the presidency, presidential approval in context of, uh, I think the first iteration, I was looking at confidence in the different institutions of government, Congress, uh, the presidency, as opposed to the president, uh, and the courts, and then I just made some sort of average. And then after having done some more reading and remembering back to my um, days in graduate school, where I we also had to take a, a second uh, exam uh, for our prelims, and I had taken comparative. And one of the things that I had taken in comparative politics that really interested me was the role of the state writ large. And um, I had written some some stuff on this in the mid two thousand, around 2004, 2005. And then it occurred to me that I could kind of uh, marry the two. And so uh, one of the underlying Elaine Camark had written uh, a really interesting piece in the book um, in a in a Brookings publication about how trust is the undergirding of the American state or of the idea of the state. And so a little um, light kind of went off in my head that thinking, OK, instead of just looking at these averages, um what if i looked at trust in government and then i could marry the idea of the presidency as the face of the american state and in the american state at the same time um so that's kind of a long-winded way of saying how i got into it but uh i had other projects going i i, I published my first book uh in 2000 and um so, but you know I, I had done some other things as well uh, i thought about maybe a textbook on the presidency um but leverage, and the idea of leverage never left my mind. Uh, And then I was at a conference for Jimmy Carter's 30th inaugural anniversary. And I was eating dinner with my, uh, my old dissertation chairman, Erwin Hargrove. And he asked me what I was working on. And I had done a paper at this conference. And while it wasn't just about leverage, there was some leverage. And I had said, uh, but I'm also thinking about a uh, presidential um, textbook. And he said, I remember him saying, does the world really need another presidency textbook? And I said, well, I don't know. But he said, why don't you think about working on this other stuff? That sounds kind of interesting. And um, fast forward another five years, because like I said, I just got back to a, a small liberal arts college, which I love. But they you know, focus on teaching. And, but they also uh, really respect and value um, research, but I didn't get a sabbatical to, to till 2012. And I thought, you know what, why not? This is what kind of where my passion is instead of trying to clear other things. I was, I'm, I'm kind of a, uh, you know, dessert after dinner kind of guy. And so I thought, well, let me finish all these things and then I'll really focus on what I want to. But then that pile of other possibilities kept growing. And I thought, you know what? life is a little bit too short. And so I just decided to dive into this. So I started the sabbatical in 2000, the fall of 2012. And then, you know, a little bit of research time during the the school year, but then really intense research summers and, um, finally finished the book and, and, uh, was gracious. And, and, um, Shirley Warshaw at, uh, who was at Gettysburg college, but is the editor, um, of this series at Stanford had asked if, if she could take a look at it and we met at APSA APSA in 2014, I think. And we talked a little bit about it and, and I delivered the manuscript a couple of years later. So
0: awesome! I mean, that's that that is an interesting odyssey of the sort of germation or the idea, and how you know you sort of came and went from it, but it it stayed with you. Um, and I think that's really clear in in the book itself that you you dive into the complexity of, as you say, not just leverage, but sort of how the role of the presidency is is sort of fixed in the state and the relationship between the you know the state itself um, the nation state and and where the president and the presidency are in that but i wanted to ask you a little bit about presidential leverage because this obviously is title of the book and the impetus for you to sort of explore the these many threads that you have woven together you define in detail it is not just about presidential leverage, as you already mentioned, but as a more complex assessment of what political scientists come to mean. By political leverage, um, and that is not just about the president. Kind of in this vacuum, could you explain a bit about what this term means and how you define and discuss it in the book?
1: Right, um, that's a good question. To me, what I was thinking was uh, instead of power, you know, because uh, so much of of the Uh, literature on the presidency has talked about power, whether it was new stats, power to persuade, or, um, Howl and other people's, you know, power without persuasion? Or is it, you know, going even way back to Edward Corwin? Is power basically the sum total of uh, what the Constitution gives the president? Um, It even sort of delves into this, you know, the stewardship versus the weak presidency. You know, is the Constitution a uh, limiting document, as the Whigs thought? In other words, if it didn't say specifically what the president could do, then he can't do it, uh, versus Teddy Roosevelt, right, who said um you know well no if the if the if the constitution doesn't explicitly say you can't then then i'm all for it and one of the things that i found really interesting and i certainly can't take credit for it i think um and i would refer listeners who are interested uh joseph cooper has some really interesting chapters in um in i think it's congress reconsidered i'd have to look at that i don't remember if it's the nelson reader i think it's the other one but where he talks about how congress um has uh Sort of taking a back seat. So one of the the things that was interesting to me was this idea that I I call institutional inversion, and that is without much being said, you know, most of the constitutional changes in the presidency have to do with how we elect the president, but yet with a without much detailing presidential power, you know, the presidency has kind of taken a a front seat uh, has almost moved above uh, Congress in terms of how we think about presidential uh, relationships with the state. Um, you know, the president, I have several vignettes about uh, presidents being, you know, and seeing themselves even as, as a, uh, as the At least the face of the state. And so the idea was what I, I kind of wanted to try to get away a little bit from the idea of power. And that's, I don't even know or when I came up with the term leverage, it must have been for that first paper, because I remember it was called presidential leverage. But the idea is, when can a president leverage um you know, support or in other things, I've called it the president's place in the political system or the, the president's place in the American state and use that to extract um, action, uh, perhaps concurrence uh, from Congress and things. And, some, and what I found was um, sometimes it it, it really is starkly present and other times not. And I, and I do talk about that in the book as well. So for me, the idea of leverage isn't so much you know, power, but, but how other institutions, uh, particularly Congress, but not just Congress, um, and the public see the president as um, a source of, of political action and, um, and, and dynamic action in the American political system.
0: And, and that's, I mean, the the source of dynamic action as opposed to what we often think about with regard to Congress as, you know, slow and not very oftentimes aggressive action in certain regards. Um, and you discussed this idea of leverage within our constitutional system. Um, can you talk a little bit about how and where you see this kind of leverage and to a degree, the power that ultimately is associated with it, even if it is distinct from constitutionally outlined powers. Um, situated within the Constitution and thus within the United States system.
1: Yeah, I I, I do talk a little bit about um, other forms of leverage, uh, right? Because, you know, constitutionally derived forms of leverage. Uh, So, for example, the veto is an obvious one. Um, And, you know, and and all the things that go with the veto, right? The president just doesn't have to just veto a bill to assert uh, leverage, but can... um, uh, you know, threaten the veto. And then hopefully, uh, from his standpoint, there will be a change in how the bill comes out, or, or, or will there be a response to a veto threat? So there are other places uh, in the Constitution. And where I see this as sort of a, I, I call it a, a public um, source of presidential leverage, so there's the constitutionally derived ones, and there's the public one, and and a lot of this has to do with the idea that you know it, it is both a blessing and a curse for presidents to be seen as the face of of, of the American state, because you know this goes back to uh, the discussion earlier about presidential expectations, where a president, um, right or wrong, is held responsible for. Uh, a bad economy and rewarded for a good economy even though what uh he and someday she uh does will have maybe you know some sometimes more sometimes less uh certainly foreign affairs things like that so it goes back to this idea of uh of expectations and that um generally i think we also see uh, or or the literature tends to see expectations as a hindrance on the president. But of course it can also be a a source of, 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 of power, um, where, you know, we expect the president to do something about that where perhaps, you know, it wasn't seen as legitimate, you know, a hundred years ago or whatnot. So I see this as, you know, you, you have presidents have constitutionally derived leverage, um, you know, things like, um, Which I also look sometimes as dependent variables, but, you know, what they can do unilaterally um, and that has been, you know, passed on by the Supreme Court and so forth, what they can do unilaterally, what they can do, uh, you know, specifically via the Constitution, um, like I said, with vetoes. But then this is sort of the public source where... um, you know, if 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 a president has higher leverage, and in the way it's defined, um, I, I almost hate to say mathematically because it's just a, it's just a you know a very simple. Um, it's the president's for your for your listeners. It's the president's approval divided by um, trust in government at any one time. And I go into the book, into a lot of detail in the book about how that's um, how that's measured. And, you know, I take some from Luke Keel, and then I extend it and use an algorithm developed by James Stimson. But the point is that it's it's really a different way of looking at, at trust. And the way that we look at trust, or the way I, I have it in trust, is it specifically does not ask. The questions that are put into the algorithm are not about a president or or even, you know, I might ask about um very I, I have the questions in in the in an appendix or in the footnotes in the book and it's specifically if it says do you trust say you know Barack Obama or George W. Bush then that's actually not used or do you trust Nancy Pelosi or Newt Gingrich um, you know I want people to think about what I wanted was questions uh, and I think like I said I, I derive a lot of this from uh, the work of others uh, you know I if, and I'll do this with my students sometimes, actually. I'll say, okay, if I say Washington DC or I say the government, what do you think of specifically? And it's really interesting to hear what they say. Some will say, um, some will actually say more like, here, I'm here in Missouri. So some of people say, well, like, Jefferson City, but most will say something to do with the federal government. They'll say, I think of the president or I think of Congress. And some will say, I think of the whole thing. Um, and that's kind of how actually I do it. When I think of the federal government, I, have, I literally have in my mind this view of Washington, D.C., you know, that has, and, and I can see all of it. Uh, for me, that's what it is. So I want to leave up to the specific respondent what he or she is saying when they ask, do you trust the federal government? One of the big questions is, do you trust the federal government to do what's right? Uh, and so I want... Um, the The respondent. I want questions that measure what the respondent, and I, you know, without without the uh, the questioner leading them. What do you think about you know Donald Trump or Barack Obama? You know, I want the person to think about it themselves. So I'm curious about. So when when a president's approval is higher, um, and say political trust is lower, to me, that's when a president has um, more leverage. Uh, because, as I think I put it in the in the in the book colloquially, you know the president is the best or even sometimes the only game in town, right and so presidents post Watergate have actually been um, been advantaged by this because Vietnam and then Watergate um, if you look at in a, you know at almost any um, graph of of public trust, uh, and I certainly have some in the book that you'll see, you know, political trust was actually pretty big coming out of the Eisenhower administration, pretty high coming out of the Eisenhower administration into the Kennedy administration. Then, then it sort of hits Vietnam and then it starts to fall throughout the 60s. And then you get into the Watergate era and it really kind of bottoms out. And so one thing I like about the way that I think about, or, or for me, what works is that, that leverage is more than approval. It's, um, It's a relative measure. So a president can actually be, let's say, relatively unpopular, you know, with popularity ratings in the, say, the lower 50s or even the upper 40s, and still have a degree of leverage if public trust is, you know, particularly low. On the other hand, you know, John F. Kennedy, for example, he didn't have a lot of what I call leverage. I mean, he did, he certainly had some because he was popular, but at the same time, you know, public trust was also very high. So, you know, people trusted government as a whole, but they also trusted, you know, they, he was, he was popular. So there wasn't anything over and above. Uh, so, you know, one of the things I have in the book is looking at sort of a pre versus post Watergate, um, dynamic in terms of, of leverage. So, so I try to get at it. I, in a, in a, it, it's, it sounds a lot more complex than it is. <laughs> it really is. It's just the higher your leverage, the more you, you know, the more the president sort of, it goes back to Skoronic stands. Uh, I, and I don't, by the way, say that the leverage is a direct, um, by any means is a, is a direct test of, of Skoranik. um, far from it, but that's where it came from. But the idea is that the, yeah, the higher that index, the more the president stands away from and above, uh, the rest of the political system, and the closer it is together, then uh, you know it, it's not that the president's necessarily weak, but that there's really you know people trust government and they trust the president, and so there's really nothing overly special or different about the presidency in those periods.
0: And that I mean, and I think that's what's interesting is it's not just this question of presidential approval. That you're looking specifically at presidential approval, trust in government, also what Congress is up to um, and and how they're also seen or members of Congress or Congress as a whole are also seen. So that it's it's sort of this, um, as you say, it's a kind of dynamic um, understanding of um, how we the citizens also think about um our government which i think is important so it's you know and again it's a distinction oftentimes the literature on the presidency is about you know how much as you say how much power does the president have how many things did the press does has the president accomplished in a short period of time the first 100 days um but this is a kind of distinction that most of us don't always think about which i think is why the book is really good um, you also talk about the role that the media plays in regard to presidential leverage. How do you sort of situate that within not only your algorithm, but also your analysis?
1: Yeah, uh, the media, um, and and I think, you know, one of the things, and and again, I'm drawing on on the work of others, um, Joseph Cooper in particular, one of the things that has sort of moved us in to this age of institutional inversion, has been the growth of of media. And while I don't incorporate any measure of media uh, per se, that is definitely one of the things that I've been sort of thinking about in you know future endeavors uh, where I you know either um, improve upon or at least extend the idea of of leverage because it certainly can be done. Um, you know, there's a lot, and I, I think the media um, is is another you know tool for um for presidents and that you know whether or not approval ratings job uh whether it's job approval personal approval or policy approval uh you know i know one of the big debates is of course whether or not presidential rhetoric can uh can move systematically these things. Um, I think it's, it, you know, it's through the, the lens of the media that allows us to, uh, the president can somewhat shape. Now, I will say a number of years ago, somebody asked about this. I think it was a reviewer for an article. And I said, well, you know, my response was, I don't necessarily see a president being able to systematically undercut um, the government. Uh, rhetorically, which would be you know a strategy if a president you know this isn't by the way of course something that the president comes downstairs you know out of the residence and says how's my <laughs> leverage today the way that no I don't think so. <laughs> the, way at, <laughs> right, no, the way he or she might look right no but the way he he or she might look at their approval ratings right. Um, but so so the way I, I, I used to to do this, and I, I did have a, a friend who was reading this and said, you know, maybe don't say that unless you want to say that. I used to call it sort of a, it, it's a measured um, feeling. You know, it's, it's kind of an aura in a way. Um, you know, think about the Watergate era, for example, and then say Carter. You know, one of the things that uh, someone had once said to me at a, at a conference was like, well, you need to change the name of it. You know, because you know it's not really leverage um because specifically they were talking about if you look at say nineteen seventy seven Jimmy Carter uh has pretty high leverage, and he said, Carter, have high leverage, and I thought about it for a second, and I thought, well, I would still stick with leverage because you know it, it seems to have some face validity because you know, Carter was the first post Watergate, post Vietnam president. You know, he said, "I won't lie to you," and and so the you know the country was really kind of looking for this. Now, if if he had had high leverage in say seventy nine or eighty, uh, I might have thought, okay, there is something to that. But um, and that's what I mean by you know, you look at it 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 uncovers things. Some of the things you aren't going to be surprised at, right? Some of them are like. Jimmy Carter. I think the one big one was maybe Jimmy Carter in 77, but it's not going to surprise anybody that, um, Johnson toward the end of his presidency or Nixon, right before he resigned, um, had kind of bottomed out. And then Ford had a fairly, you know, his first few months, uh, was, 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 was pretty high in terms of leverage. And he was sort of taking advantage of this idea that, okay, um, you know, our long national nightmare is over, as he said. And so his approval was a little bit higher Uh, and trust in government though was still down. And then, you know, Things happened, and, and that got squandered, and he lost uh, the 1976 election. And a lot of that, to go back to your original question, I think had a lot to do with how the media uh, has shifted over time, um, and that you know perhaps the current administration has made me rethink a little bit about the degree to which a president maybe can try at least to systematically undercut, um, you know, other institutions. Uh, in government. I, I, I'll confess maybe to a little bit of naivete. Uh, a few years ago when somebody asked me about that, and I, I thought, well, you know, I, I guess I could see maybe them trying. I mean, all presidents try to, or most presidents try to, you know, there's the politics of blame and blame avoidance and and sometimes accepting, you know, most notably, right, the example that's used a lot is, is Kennedy in the Bay of Pigs, you know, okay, um, I take full responsibility for that. And that actually redounded To his favor. Um, But the media, you know, I I think maybe in in this new era, and and the book literally (laughs) was due to the press um, like a month after the election. (laughs) Uh, Right, exactly, the 2016 election. And so I only literally mentioned Trump maybe on the last page or two and and it's all in the future he hadn't even been uh, inaugurated yet um, so at, in future iterations of, of, of you know papers or whatever I decide to do with this um, I'm gonna have to explicitly take that into account because at least you do have a president who systematically tries to do that maybe in a much starker uh, way than has been the case in in past presidencies or at least that's my my read on it
0: and I mean and, and again, we're often faced as political scientists trying to analyze the the Trump presidency. In ways that we apply to previous presidents, and in some places those analyses make sense, and in other, you know, and and can give us good information and and conclusions. But in other places, we're kind of flummoxed. And so I think, you know, you're correct in that you know the the way that you're talking about trust in government and the approval of the president and the approval of the president's actions and the president's rhetoric in the Trump administration is perhaps a different dynamic than most of the contemporary presidents.
1: I absolutely agree with that. I, um, you know, colloquially, again, when, when people ask about it, you say, you know, one of the ways that we as political scientists try to model or at least uh, formulate some sort of predictive uh, capacity is because we can draw on, you know, previous presidencies different circumstances different contexts different parties uh different relationships to parties and so forth um but president trump is 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 different i think uh in many ways um you know especially if you look at the early battles over trying to repeal obamacare right he was much more at war i mean, I mean to be fair, the Democrats weren't really going to go along with it anyway, so he was very much at war with his own party and undercut Congress and so on and so forth. So yeah, it is it is a little bit different, and that's one thing that I'm going to have to wrestle with as I take this uh, in, into the future is how to capture that and and maybe it doesn't apply as well. Although there were some things uh, I think um, that President Trump has uh, has done or you know that. That's very much in line. Um, it, can I talk real quick about one of the interesting findings of the book? One of the interesting findings of the book, I thought, was that a lot of the movement is actually on low leveraged presidents, um, and and I also have a part in the last chapter where I, I try to talk about the domain of the theory, like where I thought that that maybe this would, you know, that leverage would have an impact, and it doesn't, um, but. Uh, one of the things that was surprising to me is that a lot of the movement in terms of uh, i have what I call um, the macro political environment and the micro political environment so for example, uh, one place where as leverage increases, uh, the proportion of significant laws that originate with the president increases i won 't bore your your listeners with it, but you know I use mayhew 's list of um, Major significant policies, and then I cross-listed uh, originally with um, Andy Relevage's uh, um, list of, of legislation that was proposed, that was you know made and conducted and centralized in the presidency, in the White House, and I sort of cross-listed it. So if a, if a major piece of legislation. Um, on Mayhew's list was also on that list or using other sources later on to show that it was mostly out of the presidency that I counted, you know, so it was sort of big significant policies that originated in the presidency there as leverage increases. So does the proportion of, of those laws uh, increase, but other places. So for example, you know, now this may not be surprising, unilateral political action, like executive orders as presidential leverage increases, um, you know, the amount of, of executive orders that are issued uh, decreases. And if you flip that on its side, you know, uh, or even upside down, what you get, I think, interestingly, is that these low-leverage presidents are the ones who have to act and use unilateral powers. But also, interestingly, State of the Union requests, um, again, that are done in the White House, you know, there's a couple of different things. Um, one of them is uh, State of the Union requests that the president has, again, has made, or at least you know, in the White House or in the executive branch, and they are bringing to Congress to ask them to, um, you know, to to do something to to pass their legislation. What I found, which I think was surprising, was that as uh, leverage increases. As the index of presidential leverage increases, the number of State of the Union requests decreases. Or again, to put it another way, um, low leverage presidents are likely to ask for a lot more. Yeah. And and it seems to me, and and one of the interesting things that I I think I'd like to try to do um, is some of these, you know, and then if you look at uh, centralization of policy, as as presidential leverage increases, presidents are... um, um, less likely to centralize policy in the White House. What's interesting about those things is those seem to be fairly consistent with prospect theory, um, which I, is is an area that I again I've found fascinating to to read about and think about. And um, so it makes some sense where if a president is low leverage, maybe less powerful, they're going to try. You know, let's 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 that.
0: Uh, <laughs> I don't mean to put it
1: so starkly, but, yeah, let's throw the pasta against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, because, yeah, that's how – so – but it's interesting if you look at, like, the size of the EOP and the political staff, um high-leverage presidents like, you know, Reagan or Clinton or Obama, um, they don't move much. You know, they don't they don't add or subtract too much, or at least in terms of the numbers that I have. But again, it's presidents that are sort of in trouble in terms of leverage are much more likely to add political staff. Um, so, anyway, that was one of the more interesting things that I, I found in the book that I didn't I, I think can be explained. And and one place I want to explore later is applying the idea of prospect theory. But um, but yeah, that that may be a place where I wasn't exactly expecting to to find what I found.
0: And in that in that context, I would really love for you to give us a few of your favorite key examples of high leverage, low leverage. You know, sort of uh, attempts at policy, um, and and how you saw the you know the sort of structure of your analysis work out.
1: Sure. Um, yeah. I guess you know again going back to my Carter example, that was one surprise. You know, if you look at it, all of them, uh, it, it does make sense. You know, high. The The three big peaks are Carter in 77, um, George H.W. Bush in about 1991, and um, then um, George W. Bush in 2001. But you also have some interesting... Uh, things you know. So if you take President Obama for example, um, as I say in the book, that you know, if Kennedy's experience uh, constitutes a concrete example of the relative nature of the measure, uh, Obama's first term is a veritable poster child. Um, yeah, no president that I looked at, um, you know, came to office with a, a, a greater um, promise of, of of changing things, but. You know, so here he was. Um, there were some interesting things, and you get this with um, Bill Clinton. That you know, if you look at uh, averages, and one of the things I do have in the book is z scores because I, I I always just like to do that because it makes it easy to um, identify the outliers. And so, for example, Bill Clinton was interesting, um, or at least his his uh, leverage, because a lot of times he was below average in terms of approval. Um, but he was, trust was so low (laughs) that he actually had high trust. You know, he was above average in leverage, but below average in approval, um, if that makes sense. And and Obama to some degree as well, you know, because Obama famously uh, sort of lingered in the, um, you know, mid to upper 40s to lower 50s, but he constantly had very high leverage. And I think part of that was, of course, you know, George, um, one interesting thing, I guess, too, uh, is George W. Bush, because he had among the highest. In fact, I think his leverage at one point might have been among the highest of anyone. Um, but after nine eleven, it that's true. But the interesting thing, too, is it wasn't overly high. And the reason was because, um, you know, all other institutions, rose as well i think i I remember reading something i don't think i put it in the book but one interesting thing i think it was by james Stimson showed that i think i'm sure i'm going to get this wrong but like the mayor of sacramento you know uh you know trust and approval in the mayor of sacramento rose dramatically after 9-11 people were just you know much more is a rally around the flag effect um but uh exactly yeah exactly and so um but you know, Bush, I think, was another one, and then especially toward the end, where he had a bit rougher road in his uh, second term, you know, especially after Katrina, um, but then also after uh, the midterms in 2006, then you really had a decline in trust, and so you know, you have another example where I think Obama um, was—I uh, don't have it right in front of me—but I think he was another example where a lot of times his Average approval was below, you know, had a, a negative Z score, a slightly negative Z score, but yet he had a well above um, average leverage because, you know, I, I hate to say it like this, but, you know, presidents can take advantage of the fact that Americans don't trust government. Now, that's not a normative statement. <laughs> you know, I don't like that as a political scientist. You know, I don't like that. But I mean, presidents, you know, it, it also, leads to the idea that they're, they're looking more and more at presidents. And again, I'm going to have to do some more systematic research on Donald Trump, um, especially as his uh, term continues to uh, proceed. But, but that to me again was another interesting aspect.
0: Yeah. And, and so I, I wanted to ask you a little bit because this has sort of come up a, a bit in our conversation that you spend a good part of the book discussing the role of Congress Um, in regard to leverage, in part because of the role of, as you note, the the president's co-partisans and their role in Congress. But of course, you also have the role of the opposition in Congress as part of what comes into the analysis. Um, So can you explain a bit about how Congress in the co-partisan to the presidents and also the opposition contribute to our understanding of sort of the dynamic leverage analysis.
1: Right. And and I know that there's some controversy with some of the measures, uh, in term, especially what, one of the things that I wanted to do, and of course, there were statistical problems. So I have an appendix, um, statistical problems in terms of multicollinearity. So I hope that doesn't drop off too many of the listeners. Stay with us. <laughs> Stay with us.
0: <laughs> I know. Sorry.
1: Sorry. I'm getting I'm somewhere. Um, but the idea was, uh, yeah, I think one of the things that I was interested in was looking at not just the institutional divided Government, so I have a couple of different measures. One is just the usual divided government, a dummy variable, you know, uh, coded one when there was um, divided government uh, and zero when there wasn't. But also, I, I think in the main analysis is interesting is because I'm also looking at an era when we, you know, even before we were so polarized, right? You really start to see polarization really start to grow in the Clinton administration and then accelerate under Bush and then Obama. And, and even though I haven't systematically done the work, but I think probably as well under Trump. So one of the things that I was looking at was also wondering about not just institutionally do we have divided or unified government, but do we have um, how close is the president uh, in terms of um, his ideology to the median member of Congress. And so that was an, int- and, that, and, and I found out that in many instances, that was a, a stronger, um, more interesting predictor than just simply whether or not um, Congress was run by uh, opponents, you know, um, uh, the partisan opposition, or whether or not he had more co-partisans. So I think that, you know, the role of Congress, I, I think, you know, one of the most um, interesting books on American politics I've read in uh, in, in some time is Francis Lee's book on um, on uh, looking at beyond ideology, and it really I saw fit quite nicely with with her analysis because you know she's saying that you know not it, it, we tend to look at things like ideologically charged, but even uh, you know even policies that have no real ideological content or should have a natural partisan home. I, I think one example she uses is like, you know, funding for NASA or something um, is still, you know, a president is kind of, um, you know, can be the, I, I think, there was an article um, by Siegelman and some people, you know, the kiss of death, right? You know, if, if for somebody, if the president is for it, I'm against it. And then there is, you know, and and, and there is a piece that I, I look at in, in Congress um, that I took from um, Mann and Ornstein, but uh, looking at how it's not just leverage uh, for presidents, because what they can do is it, this had to do, I think, with um, the budget and looking at, um, you know, how can, um, uh, it, it was one of those where we were going to fall off the fiscal cliff, right? And then it was a matter of, of um, no matter what we can do, or if, you know, then Obama started to agree with what the republican leadership wanted to do and then they decided not to do it and that's not a shot at any any particular party but that also just shows the increasing dynamics so one of the things that was more interesting for me was to see that this um, and it was using nominate scores and i know there's you know issues with nominate scores but but you know but i generally think they capture something important and so looking at sort of this ideological proximity variable as as well as um simply What party controls Congress and are they the president's co-partisans or are they uh, opposition uh, really has some interesting things to say about um, what the fate of presidential activity?
0: I mean, I think this is a really fascinating way to kind of explore what I think for for you and your analysis is really a kind of dynamic um, way to analyze presidents. But also one that, you know, gives us, I think, a pretty good handle on oftentimes, like, what presidents are doing, how they're doing it, and to a degree, why they're doing it.
1: Why they're doing it. Right. I agree. Um, and so I, I, t- I find myself thinking about that, um, you know, uh, as we all do as political scientists, or even just people interested in politics, you know, with the current administration and how that plays out against previous administrations and so forth. And, and, you know, I do think to the degree that, that, that it provides, uh, some other type of dynamic and insight because it puts the public, you know, in a sense, leverage measures where the president is, not just in the state, but in the public's mind. Right. And, and, and so that's why I called it the quantification of a feeling, but I, I deferred to my, uh, the friend that was reading it over who said, well, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't call it that unless you want to. And I was like, well, you're probably right. I probably don't want to say that, but, but, but it tends to be something like that. Like I said earlier, you know, the, the, it's not the kind of thing the president's going to come down and ask to see, you know, what what's my leverage rating today. He, he wants to know, probably wants to know what his approval rating is. But it's also going to, I think, lead into a larger aura or or if you will, feeling about what's going on in Washington and where the president is situated in that, especially in the public mind as well as the state.
0: Yeah, and I think you know, as we move into this election season and any election season, that's oftentimes you know this very ethereal around the edges sort of conceptualization of what do i think of the body politic and oftentimes that is what do i think about the president um but it's not just about the president i mean that's why i think your book is really important because you're showing us it's not just about the president he's an actor in there with all of these other components um that help us think about we as citizens you know, what do we think about the state and the state of the state?
1: Exactly. And and that's why I was able to go back and look at, you know, and it was a lot of fun for me, frankly, to go back and, and read some of that stuff that, you know, I thought when I in, in 1992, when I took my comparative politics prelim, I thought, all right, I am done with that. But it was really fun to go back and, and kind of take a look at some of this other stuff and see how it applies to um, American politics uh, today.
0: And and so you've talked a lot about like taking some of this forward mm-hmm. um in part because the book went to the press right the month <laughs> yeah. after Donald Trump was elected. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, which you know happened to many of us <laughs> right. Right. um yeah. in many things. Uh so what are you working on now, Dan?
1: Well, um I'm about to have another sabbatical. Um, so what I'm thinking about doing is of course writing sort of um, but I, I, was, I was telling a, a colleague the other day I, I, I don't know if I'll call it um, Trump in the age of leverage or leverage in the age of Trump um, but but yeah that's one of the things so really you know trying to bring um, uh, the current administration up as as current as I can um, and then I'm also thinking about frankly doing um, you know looking at like I said a prospect theory and how it might um, impact some of the, uh, findings that I have. And then there's also something, um, that I've thought about doing since I was in graduate school and that's, uh, and I have no idea how I would do this or where I would start with, but I've done, uh, some archival work in my career. I've done some statistical work in my career. I've never done something with like interviews and, and, and focus groups and things. And, um, and especially not, you know, for a number of reasons, I've always kind of wanted to look at sort of Catholics and politics. I happen to be a Catholic. And so I've always been interested in, in that, and especially at this particular moment in time, um, as well as, you know, other types of issues, why you have these very uh, conservative um, Catholics, but also the, the more uh, liberal or, or or Pope Francis type Catholics. Um, So anyway, that's, at best, I'll get a research design out of the sabbatical for that. But uh, but certainly in terms of this project, um, bringing um, the, the current administration more explicitly into the framework and then, again, looking at prospect theory as a way to uh, explain some of these uh, findings that I was talking about earlier.
0: Well, it sounds like you have um, three different projects, but when one of the books comes out, possibly on Catholics and politics, would you please come back on the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk to us about it?
1: I absolutely would. I would love that.
0: Thank you today for joining me today, Dan Ponder, and for um, this great book, Presidential Leverage, President's Approval and the American State, which is published by Stanford University Press. And I always like my authors to give a shout out to wherever you like to buy books, perhaps in a brick and mortar store.
1: Absolutely. I actually still go we have uh I used to work in a bookstore, so I'm a I'm a huge fan, but um I like to go to Barnes and Noble.
0: Okay. So you can get a hold of this book at Barnes and Noble or have them order it for you, I bet. Absolutely. All right, thanks, Dan.
1: Thank you, Lily.